Thank you, Devin. Well, this morning we continue our series in the book of Revelation. And so if you have a Bible, turn to the last book in the Bible, uh, the book of Revelation, and turn almost to the last chapter. We're actually at chapter 20. And so 21 and 22 will complete our series, and we will um, endeavor to uh, take those sections that we can at least explain as clearly as possible in our uh, attempt to uh, unfold uh, what God has said. But before we do that, let's look at the Lord in prayer, and then we'll, we'll gather again around his word. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word and is inspired. And, and Father, we pray that we might take this inspired word and might you give us the ability to understand it. Understand it as, as its main message, and then understand uh, uh, any of the details that are urgent for us to put it together to unfold what you have said that you will do, and might we live differently because of our time spent together, and we praise in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to imagine with me for a moment, so if you are a person with an imagination, um, just let it run wild as I kind of lead us in that, and if, if you're a person that doesn't have imagination, just kind of listen intently as I read, but just, just picture this if you could. Imagine with me for a moment a world dominated by righteousness injustice. A, a world in which there is no injustice or courts that render unjust decisions. Think of it, a world where everyone is truly treated equally. A, a world where what is right, true, and noble marks every aspect of society. Imagine also a world where there is complete, total peace and joy abounds as well as good health prevails to such a degree that people live for hundreds of years. So if you have an ache or pain this morning, just, just imagine that it was gone, uh, that you are, in the, you are at the height of whatever health that you could imagine it to be. Imagine a world where the curse is removed and where the environment is restored to the pristine purity of the Garden of Eden. Imagine also that peace reigns not only with all mankind, but also in the animal world. Isaiah writes these words, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them, and the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the nursing child will play by the hole, by the hole of the cobra. Can you imagine that? And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. And imagine for a moment a perfect righteous ruler who instantly and firmly deals with sin. Can you imagine that kind of experience that some people would say is a utopia? It is a world in which everything is how you would dream it to be. There were times when, throughout history, people thought we, we were gaining ground toward that. But after two world wars and all the things we've experienced in the 20th century, people are beginning to wonder, this is, this is impossible for it to happen. And so in the midst of all that, people who have tried to describe what we have to look forward to, they'll say it in different ways. If you're on my email blast, I, I, I uh, quoted, I wouldn't call him particularly a theologian, um, Woody Allen, but this is what he said concerning how he anticipates the future. 
uh, and I quote, civilization stands at the crossroads. Down one road is despondency and despair. Now, if you hadn't read this or hadn't heard it, you would think, well, what's, what's the positive side of this dilemma? What's the, where does the other road take us? He said one road brings us to despondency and despair, and down the other road is total annihilation. I want you to, may you go home blessed and leave this place uh, encouraged. All right. I mean, how discouraging is that? You mean, I, one, on one option, I'm going to be depressed, and the other option is I'm going to cease to exist. Uh, that, that's not much of a crossroads, is it? And yet, is if we try to see this happening on its own, I, I think we would all agree, even though we have an important election coming in 2016, do we think anyone of the candidates on both sides will bring this to pass? Do, do we put our hope in, in men or maybe even science that is going to somehow rearrange things where everybody gets to, and can, can live together in peace? And, and so for anything like this to happen... And this is exactly how God describes what God has promised through his word will happen. How can we even think it's, it's even possible? Because it will not be a human institution, but it will be a divine plan played out. And really, if we were to look, take the entire Bible you know, in summary form, and even as we look at one of the huge events that we just celebrated you know, less than a month ago, Christmas... That's really, in many ways, what the people of Israel, God's covenant people, were hoping would happen when Jesus would arrive, when the Messiah one would come, when the king would come and somehow set up his kingdom for his people. And so when he arrived on the scene, and many were kind of longing, I mean, they had seen kind of a a taste of it, and I say that with no pun intended, when they were multitudes were gathered around and Jesus fed the 5,000, which was probably more like 20,000, you count all the, the women and children. They said, this is what, this is like, this is like a kingdom because we all eat. None of us are wondering where the next meal is coming from. And yet Jesus wanted to change the rule, not only on the land, but in the heart. So Jesus, when he came the first time, dealt with sin in, in each one of our hearts. And in the future, he'll deal with the sin that's on this earth. Well, when Jesus died and rose again, uh, he wanted to make sure that people understood that it actually happened. So he, he stuck around, not just for a few moments, to kind of kept, capture possibly some people who might be overwhelmed by the emotion of the moment and said, I, I, I think I saw Jesus three days after he, he, uh, he was buried in the tomb. He actually stayed for 40 days, and he appeared to many people in various circumstances to, to demonstrate that the resurrection actually happened. And he wasn't just kind of a, a kind of show-and-see type of a ministry. He also taught them. He, he taught them about things that were going to come. And in Acts chapter 1, we, we see Jesus about to take off, and, and the disciples have one last question for the professor. And they asked him this question. He said, well, is now the time in which you'll restore the kingdom of God to Israel? And what were they talking about? They they were talking about the things I just read in terms of imagining what will happen when Jesus rules and reigns. This wasn't just wishful thinking from them. It was based on the promises of God, and they were anticipating Jesus to rule. Now, his response was, you are not in the the uh, 
um, the calendarizing ministry of God. I will pick the time. You are in the sales department. You need to get the message out. But what we have now in, in the message as we get to the book of Revelation is, is how Jesus is going to make this happen. How can there be a, a, a return to the Garden of Eden experience? How, how can there be a time in which many people wonder, well, how can you believe in a, a good God when all the bad things happen in the world? And we believe in a good God now. And one reason we believe in a good now is that he is going to fulfill that plan when the bad things that happen will cease. Because he'll come upon this planet and rule it, as the Bible says, with a rod of iron. And he will deal with evil immediately. So if you have your Bibles, uh, Revelation chapter 20, we're, we're going to see how this is played out. And, and in case I, I get caught up in some of the details I want to share with you this morning, though it's a simple message with a lot of details in between, what's the point of of responding to the question, how will things get better? Because even if they get better, what's that supposed to do for me now if this is all future stuff, right? Well, if you turn to the back of the outline this morning, the so what is this? Knowing it's going to be better in the future enables me to live better in the present. Knowing that the future is going to be better enables me to live better in the present. Now, what, why is that? Because no matter what happens, we know that this is not the end. God has a better plan. And no matter how many times I get discouraged or challenged or overwhelmed, we need to know in the end, God wins. And if we're on the winning side, God's side, then we win as well. And so let's look at it this morning as we see what happens in chapter 20. In chapter 20, right before chapter 20 comes chapter 19. I know some of you are all alert for that. Is, uh, and, and so in chapter 19, we looked at the passage in which Jesus comes to this earth. When he comes to this earth the next time, he's coming in judgment. And he judges those who rebel against him. And there's, there's death everywhere. Except for those who would, have claimed the name of Jesus Christ, knows him personally. And, and they are not judged with his hand. They are not given um, the sentence of death at that moment physically. But you wonder, well, what comes next? Well, what comes next after chapter 19 is chapter, chapter 20. Just making sure you're still with me, all right? And in chapter 20, we see about how God's going to make it better. Where it's not just wishful thinking, we can kind of see it played out. And so the first thing you're going to see is that when, when things are bad, right? When things are bad, evil, just destructive, there's usually a source of that destruction, right? There are some things that are kind of causing that to happen. And, and so for good to reign, you need to deal with that, which is not so good, right? And so right in the beginning, as God announces his plan, he says, this is how it's going to happen. This is going to be the answer to the prayer. Remember the Lord's Prayer? Our Father art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, often people pray that prayer in ceremonial settings and Often we, our mind disengages when we pray that or they sing it. And I'm not saying you always do that when it's done in a ceremonial way. But my mind often will do that. It becomes more of a ritual. But if you think about those words, what is it saying? God, I, I, I want you to do what you're doing up there to come down here, right? And if we pray that prayer in faith, and we sang about faith earlier in the service, we believe it's going to actually what? Happen. The answer to that prayer I want 
God's rule, God's will to be done here exactly like it's done in heaven, which is done perfectly and completely. I want that to happen here. Well, how's that going to happen? Well, he gives us a flute, cute flute. My mouth is speaking slower than my mind at the moment. Okay, is that for that to happen here, this is how it's going to happen. Let's look at it. He's going to deal with the enemy, or to put it in the way I have it in your outline, there will be the chaining of the evil one to stop his influence for a thousand years. This, this planet would be a lot better off if there wasn't someone in this universe tempting people to do evil, right? Influencing them. And what God is saying, I'm going to stop that for a period of time. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. And we've told you before, the word angel simply means messengers. There are heavenly messengers and earthly messengers, and these are heavenly messengers. He comes down from heaven. He's holding the key of the abyss, and a great chain is in his hand. Now, the Bible speaks in words, and also the Bible speaks in pictures. In the book of Revelation, there's a lot of descriptions that allows our minds to kind of visualize truth. Now, I don't think a heavenly messenger, an angel, who's a spirit being, is necessarily holding a literal physical chain because he's going to be chaining up another spirit being that's not made in flesh and blood. But, what it, but every symbol speaks to a concrete truth. And the concrete truth here is that God is going to jail up, however you want to say it, the enemy and preventing him from doing what he wants to do. He's going to be put in chains. Verse 2. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for how long? A thousand years. So whatever God's going to do in the future, this first part of it, it is time-governed, right? It's, this is a period of time that God is describing. It's a thousand-year period of time. And this one, the evil one, Satan, has been allowed to, to go about this world influencing and impacting and tempting people. Uh, now he said, I'm going to stop that for a period of time. And, and, and what am I going to do with him to stop him? Verse 3. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive, that's how he influences, he, deceive the nations any longer until the, how many years? thousand years were completed and after these things he must be released for a short time so we know this chain is only going to be incarcerating satan for a a period of time and he's going to be one whose influence is going to be eliminated now what i want to emphasize here and the abyss is basically the jailhouse it's a it's a pit that god had created for uh, rebellious uh, angels, we would call them demonic beings, and God has already imprisoned some of them. We found out earlier in the book of Revelation, he releases them for a short period of time for them to do some influence, and he throws them back in there. That's not their final destiny, but it is their destiny. And God says, now I want you to be totally clear as you read my revelation in the book of Revelation that Satan is going to have no freedom in there. He's going to be chained up. He is not going to be able to influence people. Now, Again, I want to emphasize, if we, if we imagine a place in which righteousness rules, that, that people have peace not only among each other but in even the animal world, there's prosperity in the land. And, and if you do the Bible study this week, you'll see some of the things that describe this period of time in the Bible, particularly in the book of Isaiah. 
of this millennial time. And if you're confused when people talk about the millennial reign of Christ, the word millennial or millennium simply is the Latin word for, guess how many years? A thousand. And if you've ever read a book which speaks in a different language, you'll say chiliism. And that's the Greek word for a thousand. He's talking about this period of time that he has set aside for his kingdom to be ruled here on earth. And for that to rule, he's going to have to deal with the evil one. For this period of time, no one can say, well, the devil made me what? Do it. You can't say that because he's not making you do it. This is totally your own choice. And, and who, is this, who is this one that chained up? He is a formidable enemy for us. He, in fact, the Bible describes him in four ways in that one verse. He, he's the dragon that's going to be chained up. That dragon, he's, the, he's that cruel beast that, that just wants to devour somebody. And you'll see later on in 1 Peter 5, 8, he's that, that lion who's just looking to destroy. He's the serpent of old. Now, the serpent of old goes back from the last book in the Bible to probably the what book in the Bible? First book in the Bible, where Satan was the author or at least the influencer to call Adam and, and Eve to rebel against him. And he said that, that one who's enticed people to sin will not be able to do that. Thirdly, in that way, the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden has two different kind of uh, parallels to the book of the Garden to, to the, the millennial reign of Christ or the thousand-year reign of Christ. There will be no Satan, but there will still be the capacity for us to sin. There will be the ability for us to make choices that say yes to God or yes to my own will. And, and so the enemy will not be there. And that enemy is the one who is cruel, he's a beast, he's the tempter, he, he's the devil. And the devil means slanderer or accuser. Now, why that's so important, you know, why do we do some things? Sometimes we do things because we've just kind of given up hope and we think we're, we're worthless or we're, we're so messed up. And if you're so messed up, you might as well just keep messing up, right? I was trying to think some kind of analogy. Um, when I'm, I mentioned last week, you know, if I paint, that I, I always like people to know I've painted because the paint's all over me, right? But sometimes I go out painting and I say, I don't want to get any paint on my clothes. You ever done that? You know, I just got a little bit of, you know, paint. I, I just don't want to get any paint on my, on my clothes. But what happens once you get some paint in your clothes? You say, what's the use? I'm not going to worry about how much paint I get on my clothes because I've already ruined my clothes, right? Well, we do that not only with paint, but with our own lifestyle, don't we? Sometimes when we mess up, particularly if we're convinced that we're worthless. Now, if I think I can get the paint out of my clothes, maybe it's water-based, and I just scrub it and put some stuff on it, then I'll still be careful. But if I feel I've messed up that shirt so badly that I don't really care how much paint comes on it, and, and that's, what the, that's what Satan does. He, he convinces that we're worthless. And so what's the use? And then he's also Satan, the adversary, which means he's always our enemy. 1 Peter 5.8 says, But be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So Satan is active. There is a spiritual warfare going on. It's not just the things that we see that bring us down the wrong path. It's the enemy as well. But the good thing is, things will get better. And how will they get better? Because God is going to deal with the enemy. But if you're looking at this and think, well, how is God going to make this happen? God's kingdom to rule on earth. It's one thing to deal with the enemy or the things that are bad. You can't just leave it a vacuum. You've got to bring that which is what? Which is good. And so 
That's what is announced very plainly. And sometimes I think if we just think simply, we can understand God's word because that's what comes next. And what we're going to see here is uh, how will God make it better? There will be an, um, the amazing rule of Christ and his saints on earth for a thousand years. So you deal with one ruler, the God of this age, being chained up, and then you bring in the perfect ruler with his representatives. Matthew, I mean, uh, Revelation chapter 20, beginning at verse 4. Then I saw thrones. Again, we have now another picture. He's talking about thrones, which are symbols of rule or reign, of administration, of leadership. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And you wonder, well, who, who are these people? Well, these are the people who come with Jesus at the second coming. The, pe the people who have been brought up to heaven that know him, they will come with Jesus, and Jesus will put them in positions of responsibility and authority. In fact, look at your outline just for a moment. Look at Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. And Jesus said to them, his disciples, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, which is this period of time we're talking about, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, however that is played out, he talked to his disciples and apostles. You could say he made it a broader thing. All those who will follow, they'll have a position of leadership and responsibility in this world that will be like, any, like no other time this world has ever experienced because it will be worldwide, not in a, in a, a specific environment, the Garden of Eden. It will be worldwide. And that somewhat works in the analogy. Of course, Jesus is all-powerful, and he can be omnipresent. But if he was a ruler on this earth, it'd be like the analogy of, of you know, we can get the right president in the office of the United States. Is that going to change everything? No, because then you've got to get the right people in the House of Representatives. But if you've got the right people in the House of Representatives, I've got to slow down my mouth. I can't keep up with it. If you've got everybody right in the House of Representatives, would that be enough? No, you'd have to get the right people in the Senate. Would that be enough? No, you'd have to get the right people in the Supreme Court. And would that be enough? You'd have, you, you, no matter how far you go down, you, you would never get to the point where every person who was in ruling or responsibility was in the right office. But when Jesus comes, there will be everyone in the right office. That's why it will be a, a, a land filled with the peace of God. It won't be perfect at that point because people will still have the opportunity to be selfish and rebel, but it will be dealt with swiftly. In fact, you're thinking, well, isn't that kind of a high position for people to be in, to rule with Jesus? Well, look what it says in 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Kind of a, a rhetorical question, but the answer to that rhetorical question is what? Yes. And, and there are things in the Bible that are hard to believe. To me, you know, I look around, all of us here, and I'm thinking, Jim, you're going to rule, you're going to judge the angels? Oh, my, what kind of world are we going to be in? No, you know, you know what I mean? You look at that and you go, really? We're going to judge people who are living in heaven now? And really, I think he's talking about the demonic world that we're going to be able to judge against them. But he says this, if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Which is the idea we ought to be able to. We ought to be able to handle disputes now if in the end we're going to be handling disputes much greater than any dispute we can think of right now. And so God, as he, as he redeems us completely, we'll be in the position to say, I can make righteous judgments all the time as we've been glorified in heaven. 
But he goes on, he says, well, who else is around here? And I, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast of his image and had not received the mark of their forehead and on their hand and they came to, to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So he said, I want you to understand in this millennial reign of Christ or this kingdom here on earth, Christ is going to rule, and not only is he going to rule, but all those who follow him, his saints, which simply means people set apart to really know him, they're going to reign as well. And I want you to understand, those who are going to reign with him are not only the church, who, as I understand, will be raptured up to be with him before this period of time, but even the people during that time who went into that period of great tribulation, not believing, but come to the point where they are believing, and we know they're believing because their faith was demonstrated in their words and their actions, so much so that people said, if you're with Jesus, off with your head. If you're with Jesus, then death. If you're not with us, you don't have the mark on the beast, death. Because they were public in their witness for Christ, the vast majority of people on this planet will suffer death. And in that day, the word that is used in the original language for witness, which is the word martyr, which was so evident in the first century because most people who were public in their faith, it cost them their lives initially, that in that day that will be true as well. We live in a time where, where we read about people who are public in their faith, have lost their lives, but it's the minority compared to the majority who are Christ followers. In that day, it will be reversed. The majority of people who know Jesus, they will lose their lives as martyrs, as witnesses. There will be those who will reign during that period of time, and they will populate in human form that period of the kingdom here on earth. But he's saying these are the people that are going to rule. Now, the way people follow people well are people that can be trusted. Would you believe that? Would, would you agree with that? If you trust somebody then whatever they kind of tell you to do, you say, well, I, I might not understand why they're telling me this, but if I trust them, I'm going to go that way. Well, when you have people die, like on your behalf, you're going to trust them. And so those who will rule during that time will rule with Christ, and it will be a righteous rule. He goes on in verse 5, and he says this, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. And so there will be people who will die during the tribulation, and they will go up to heaven, but their bodies will not go there as well because that resurrection hasn't happened. And he says there's a resurrection of the, uh, uh, the first resurrection is the resurrection of life. And all those who have experienced that will be those who are in that kingdom, either in glorified bodies or physical bodies. And, and those who have had their, their spirits be united with Christ. But there, there is a second resurrection. And we're going to see that next week. It's not a resurrection of life. It's really a resurrection of death. And the word death is separation, separation from God. Verse 6, he says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. We'll say this again next week, but in this life, you know, looking out, all of us have one thing in common. We've been born once, Right? We wouldn't be breathing. We wouldn't be uh, sitting in a chair. We wouldn't be able to sing songs unless we had been born once, right? But if you've only been born once, 
what your future or my future would have been is I wouldn't be looking ahead to dying just once. I would die twice. And that's what he's saying here. There's a second death. Not a physical death, but a spiritual death that will last for eternity. On the other side, uh, as we look out at each other, some of us have not only just been born once, we've been born what? Twice. Because Jesus said, unless you're born again, you should never experience the kingdom of God. And, And so if you've been born twice, you will only die once. And, and, and so he, he just speaks of, of this time in which the kingdom is here on earth. And he said, those, those who have been born again, they'll experience this. And those who have not been born again will not. But he says, those who will not experience the second death has no power over them, verse 6. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So as so we think about how will things get better? Is it just wishful thinking that there's a utopia coming? I was sharing the first service. I, I, I was looking at some polling. And the first time ever in the polling of Americans is that it's a split about whether they think the future is going to be better for their children than it was for them. Every generation since we started polling always believe it's going to get better. 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 Going to get better. Now Americans say, I'm not so sure. And it's going to be better for some, but it's not going to be better for others, as God's word announces to us. But how it will happen? He'll deal with that which is bad. He'll, he'll chain up the tempter, the accuser, the one who's cruel, the one who slanders and accuses. And he'll bring in the righteous rule of Christ and his followers. Thirdly, what will happen next? That's not the final chapter. God is really setting this up to, again, display who he is. Because often we think, well, you know, I wouldn't be the way I am if I didn't have my parents, you know, or I didn't have my circumstances, or if I didn't have all this demonic activity in my life. We, we can come up with all kinds of excuses. And some of them are legit in terms of reasons why we are somewhat the way we are. But God is saying, look, I, I could give you the perfect environment. I, I could eliminate the spiritual warfare of another one trying to tempt you. And you know what? many of you would still rebel against me. And so just really quickly, in the, in the few verses we have left, uh, the first one is kind of just an announcement. Number three, there will be the final confrontation with the evil one after a thousand years. What we said earlier, there was, there was a time frame within this chaining of the evil one. And you're thinking, well, why not just get rid of him forever right now? Why not just stop it? Because he once and for all wants to show that, that God is good, but Often our hearts are so desperately wanting to rule our own lives that we'll still rebel even when there's no tempter and the world is perfect in our environment. Revelation 27 simply says this, When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. Now, when a person is released from a prison or any kind of captivity or even from a, let's say even from a job, you know, after you get out of one job, you need to find what? Another job, right? If you move from one house, you need to find what? Another house. You've got to do something, so Satan is released. What's he going to do? He's going to look for people who want to follow him, right? Because that's what he's always done. Well, 
how is he going to get any followers if everyone on this planet is convinced because God is so good, everything is perfect here on this earth. God immediately, Jesus immediately deals with evil on this planet. And it says that people prosper. I mean, you're a young person if you die at the age of 100. People are going to live, be living in the multiple centuries, okay? And yet people rebel against God even though his goodness is so evident. And why is it he will find followers? Because 1 John 1.10 says this, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And either, either we sin and know it, or, even, or sometimes we sin and we just rationalize, well, that's not wrong. Even though God's been very clear, I still want to do my own thing. And people do that now, and people will do that in the future. I could go my own way. What's wrong going my way? John 3.19 says this, This is the judgment that, that light is coming to the world, and men, lo- involve, men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. I mean, all of us, if we're really honest, there, there are times we do things and we're just hoping no one is what? Watching. And if we're, if we're not caught, it can't be what? Wrong. But whether we get caught or not, if something is wrong, it's wrong. And, and, and we like darkness because it allows us at times to do the things we want to do and we're just hoping people aren't looking or people can't see. And that will happen during this idyllic period in the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign on earth, is that those who don't know Christ uh, will have to run, either run to Jesus or run away from him. They'll have choices. During that thousand years, the population will explode here on planet. There will be a, a certain amount that will live through the tribulation. They'll, have, they'll, be mar- they'll marry, and they'll have bear children, and their children will bear children, and then their children will bear children, and the population will explode. And there will be many who will turn away from Jesus. How do we know that? Because the final thing. There will be the final defeat of all who rebel after a thousand years. Look at verse 8. It says, after Satan is released, and and there will come out, and he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Now, my feeling is, when, when when it says he's going to deceive They've already rebelled against Jesus. But what he's going to do to the four corners of the world, which basically he's going to search the planet, says, you know, if we gather together, we can defeat Jesus. One of you isn't strong enough to defeat Jesus. You kind of see this. Jesus rules a rod of iron. But if we all gather together, we can defeat him. Gog and Magog, which is symbolic of people who, who fall after the evil one, to gather them together for war. The number of them in the world of them is like the sand of the sea. Now, I, I can't even count the, the numbers of sand in a, in, a, in a kitty box, you know. Can you imagine the amount of people who rebelled against God during this period of time is like the sand of the sea? But there's a destiny for those who reject the one who's come to make everything better. Verse 9. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. So you have a picture here that, that God has all his gathered people who love his appearing, who love his rule, who want to please him. And then you have these others who become their enemies. And, and they're going to do battle. But how quickly will this battle Be consummated. It says, and surround the camp of the saints and the, and the beloved city, and the, 
And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Now, some of you, there are two, well, there's two types of people, uh, you know, in the world. There are people who like to compete and people who don't like to compete, <laughs> and somewhere in between. There are people who, who like a challenge, other people, who, I don't really like challenge. I just like to have fun with people, whatever it might be. But if you're, if you're competitive at all, you, you know what, uh, for competition to happen, uh, you know, there are two things that can't happen. One is you can't compete against somebody so much better than you, there's no way you can get near to what... You know, their abilities, whatever game it is, whatever competition it is, whatever sport it is, if they're so much better than you, why even try? Because you know they're going to win. On the other hand, you can't really compete with somebody that's so much uh, lesser than you are. Maybe they've never played the game. You've played the game for years. Uh, maybe it's a game that, that uh, uh, is more easy to win if you're taller than if you're shorter, and they're very short, and they want to compete against Whatever it might be. You can't compete against somebody who's a lot better than you and a lot worse than you. Does that make sense? Uh, but if there's true competition, true competition means that once we go to battle or once we get in the game, we're not really sure who's going to win. I'm a very simple pastor here, so don't, you know, I'm not making any you know, strange point here. Is when it gets to this last battle between evil and good, it's not going to be a co competition here. You're not wondering who, who's going to win. If you, if you, you know, watch... NFL football, there have been a couple games there where you knew one team had the game won. Then all of a sudden, the last play changed everything. Somebody fumbled, somebody missed a little field goal, whatever it might be, and you go, how did that happen? I thought we had it won. This is not going to be here. It's not going to be a competition. Once people are rallied by the evil one to, to come against God, God says, it's done. It's over. It's not going to be close. It's going to be a slaughter. Because God's hand will come upon those who rebel against him. And the enemy will be immediately punished for what he's done. Verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and the brimstone, where the beast and the false priest are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. There's a destiny for those who rebel against God, and it won't be momentary. The second death is a death that lasts forever. There's torment. So what, what does that say to us this morning? How will it get better? We, we, we would like all the ills and ails of this world to be done. We would like all the political unrest, one nation against another nation, the threat of nuclear war to be somehow eliminated, the clash between people of different world systems and values and even religious persuasion. We want truth and righteousness to reign. How is that going to It's not going to happen through our efforts. But when Jesus comes, it will happen. And how will it happen? Because he will deal with evil. He'll bring in that which is good. He, he'll, he'll set up one last battle, and then it'll be over. And the stakes will be so high. There'll be that which people can experience forever in the, in, in the, in the presence of the living God who loves and desires all that which is good for his people. 
And there will be the natural and then direct hand of God consequences for rebelling against him. And what does that say? Number one, God's people need to be passionate for people we know that don't know the Lord. Desiring that they might be rescued from that which is to come. And then on the other hand, when, when we get kind of despondent or in despair, as Woody Allen would say, or maybe depressed because of the ills and ails that we're experiencing, or the frustrations or the unrighteous, unjust things that happen in this world, we're filled with hope, not despair. We rejoice in the fact that, that God is on the throne and his plan will be carried out. And in times where at times we'll have an emotional reaction to the struggles and pains that we might have, we realize it's going to get better. And if it's going to get better in the future, how much more confident can I now be in the present, believing that God is still on the throne? It's going to get better. And because of that, we can live better for the one who's going to make it happen. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray for each one here. And each of us needs to be ready. And to be ready is to know for sure where we are in relationship to the one who's coming. Do we know him in a personal way? Have we come to that point in our life where we admit our need and we turn from our sin? Do we believe that Jesus paid the penalty for our sin on the cross when he died and rose again? And if we come to that place in our life where we've made a commitment, the commitment to say, I want to follow Jesus as my Lord, as my leader, as my God, and my Savior. And when we invite you to take over, you'll answer that prayer and we can become a child of yours. And then as we go through a life at times filled with just questions more than answers, when we wonder why certain things happen and we we are struggling in, in all kinds of ways to the obstacles that have come across our path. Might we be filled with the hope that, that it is going to get better. It will get better when you come and all things happen according to your plan. Help us to always realize that, that, he, that in the end, you win and we win with you. And we say this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Let's stand as we sing this morning. And if you like.